Night falls on the golden age of humanity. Sons shall turn upon their father, and his worlds drown in blood. The eye shall open, and the galaxy will burn. Join us, listeners. We go into the canon lore of the Forge World Black Books on Heresy Grad School. Professors Jason, Patrick, and Dave, myself, will dive into the lore of the Black Books and the Black Library novels that we know and love and explore the heresy as history. So get a coffee, get your notebook out, and uh, prepare to explore heresy as history with us on Heresy Grad School. Uh, I'm never going to get used to that. It's still creepy. Yeah. Why does he have to sound like that? I don't know. That's that's probably what servitors sound like. Mm, <laughs> yeah, no, imagine. I think it's a little more death, deathly and like, I don't know. Yeah, just imagine Craig's voice saying compliance over and over and over. Craig is an abominable intelligence. That's what he is. Anyway. Well, uh, welcome everybody to uh, another episode of Heresy Grad School uh, with your usual hosts, uh, Professors Dave, Jason, and myself, Patrick. And we've got our our wonderful, amazing guest le- lecturers uh, today, Austin and Steve. Um, and we're having them on because we're getting right into the meat of Port Maw in this episode. So we got to talk about Navy. We got to talk about fleet dispositions. And I know you guys are excited for it and we're definitely excited for it. Um, But so uh, real quick, I know we kind of left you guys with like a cliffhanger um, last week with, uh, with us complaining about what the hell is a gyre worm or gear worm, gyre worm, whatever. Dave, is it gyre worm or gear worm? Help me out here, bud. I'm I'm going with gyre worm. Okay. It's a gyre worm. And so, I want to give a really big shout out to uh, Alex Self from one of our Aussie listeners messaged us and gave us four different options to go with. So I'm going to let the cast pick out which one they like, but I'm going to read them off. So option one is from Imperial Armor 10. We got the Warm Gear is the capital world of the Helgramite Xenos race, an anthropotic race, which technically orcs are too, possibly Warm Gear, was the only word that the Imperials got out of the orcs, and it stuck. Gear worms and the orcs they came with were described as mutated, so possibly they were less allied and more thrown together in mutation and corruption. So that's the first one. I'll let you hypothesize about that. Um, the second one, um, Imperial Fists fought a Xeno race known as the Hungering Gear in um, uh, 891.m30. Maybe it was a worm of this genus, and that's in um, Extermination. Then the third one, uh, the Battle of uh, Euros, uh, Euros Thraven in uh, 900 point m30 was imperial versus orcs perhaps it perhaps it was first was the first orc subtype that was identified in this in the series of battles and there's a collected versions um yeah collected visions excuse me and then uh gear or yeah gyre implies rotation or vortex could very well just mean a xeno species sapien or not that was like a rockworm uh placed into uh, in a space hulk maybe they ate through the steel just like they used to grind through rock so those are our four options um 
regardless, Alex, thanks so much, bud, for doing all this research. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, huge shout out to our buddy Alex. And Patrick, did he convince you? I mean, he gave me four awesome options. I'm, I'm kind of digging the first one from Imperial Armor 10 because, like, that to me makes sense. Like some type of sentient race. Um, yeah, it, we just we would have to dig into Imperial Armor 10 and find out where it takes place and see if it's anywhere near, um, you know, uh, the Coronet Deeps. And if it is, Alex, you will be uh, really, well, either way, uh, you're going to be uh, surprised. And you're going to be pleasantly surprised because we're going to fucking give you something. Yeah, uh, dude. Yeah. And and please continue to send us awesome uh, lore like this. There, there are a couple things I'm going to dig into. Um, collected Visions. I, uh, I'm i not familiar with that uh, that battle. So that'll cool, man. Um, I am inclined but- to believe that it might be uh, the, the first option. Um, certainly because orcs being enslaved or otherwise subservient to other sapient races unknown uh, yeah i mean they were bred to be a weapon yeah you know people shop people find orcs all the time and they're like oh we're just gonna put a call yeah hurt them towards the guns i mean mean, that's not unknown like that's happened a couple of shoot uh, and and was it a um, I mean, in a couple of the black books, or not black books, in the couple of the black library books, you find like there's an arena battle, and they've captured a feral orc. Yeah, and at a larger scale, uh, gene stealers sometimes take them up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that happens a time or two. It tends not to work because other orcs can sense that oh, hey, you're not actually an orc. Um, but at least that leaves the basis. Like the enslavers do it too. Uh, on occasion. Mm-hmm. So I could Chaos see that happening. And honestly, that would make more cults. sense to me than uh, being like a species that's made it to the 41st millennium. Because how many of those do that once the Imperium decides that they really need a good ass kick? Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Alex, thanks. Thanks so much for the submission. And uh, we'll be in touch. Uh, on to our regular scheduled programming, guys. Where are we? That yes. was it. That was a cue for Jason. He's muted, naturally. (laughs) Damn it with his mute. (laughs) Gonna get you a good mic one of these days. One of these days. All right, squad. So let's talk about where we are in the corners. So stuff with the Death Guard, definitely going down. They've uh, more or less silenced the Cyclops cluster at large. Uh, They're still screwing about... uh, taking things over at random. Uh, things are not going well over in the Manichaean Commonwealth either. Uh, they're terrified. Stuff's going down there as well. Uh, it's not uh, not terrific. They know that the Cyclops Cluster has gone dark and that the Death Guard have you know, steamrolled through there, but they're not too sure where this next attack is going to come from. Uh, so they are trying to bunker down and aggressively void mine and fortify all the known warp transit lanes, which uh, kind of bites them in the ass later. But we'll get to that. Uh, so as it goes, we're maybe halfway through the conflict of the Coronid Deeps at large. Uh, just last time we talked about that uh, giant space hulk, you know, the red polyphemus coming through and screwing up the only legitimate uh, astropathic nexus uh, to contact back, you know, in the solar system. So they're more or less cut off as a whole now. Uh, this whole subsystem between the Manishan Commonwealth and Port Ma itself is on its own, and things are not going great. 
Yeah, things are definitely not going well. Um, so how not well are things going? Uh, we've basically got Mazoa as the only holdout. Um, and the traders have pretty systematically rolled through whatever resistance remained um, of the worlds. And we're now, um, we're closing in on the, the final sort of climactic battle. Well, it's not the final final battle, but it's certainly a major battle in the Cornet Deeps, and it's the battle for uh, for Port Ma. But before we get you there, before we let our uh, our subject matter experts Stephen and Austin really dig into just the amazing lore that's in uh, Book Four and the Cornet Deeps, um, in terms of just void warfare and battle fleet uh, composition, battleship battleship type. Um, we gotta get. We're not gonna get all the way there, and we're gonna come back uh, next week with uh, some regular, you know, regular programming guys. But uh, right before we go into Port Ma and um, Battlefleet Heresy centric, Jason, I think we gotta, gotta do a couple housekeepings. Oh yeah. So a couple of things we wanted to go over before we got into like the bulk of Port Ma, because this is one of the biggest, most important parts of this entire conflict, um, is a couple of things just to kind of set the stage. Uh, first off, you're checking along at home uh, in book four, we're on page 47. There's this little box out called the Warfleet of the Port Ma Armada. And this is a very small box out, but like a lot of the others scattered throughout the Black Books, it's actually really important to the setting at large because they're explaining uh, there's been a big shift in the composition of the fleets of the Imperium over the 200 years the Great Crusade has been going on. So this is not the same Great Crusade organization that's been you know, plowing the Imperium's way through the stars for the last 200 years. Uh, this is the Armada after that is now, it's more of a police force than a conquering army. Uh, the Imperialis Armada has conquered the galaxy for the Emperor, but now they're sectioning things off. They're uh, dividing into each Segmentum Majoris, these massive Warfleet Armadas, uh, Port Maw, is this particular one, and then there's one for each of the different uh, Segmentum Majoris, like Segmentum Solar, Segmentum Curus, etc. So these are made to secure and really lock down those domains that the Emperor won during the Crusade. Instead of being like, uh, you know, points for mustering for uh, these war fleets, they're more of like supply points and command hubs. They're kind of like a home control bases for a permanent armada, instead of a more mobile fleet. And that's important too, this shift in theme, because now uh, the Imperium is not putting as many resources into these giant, uh, more self-sufficient battleships. Uh, like they talk about the Gloriana is of course a classic and the uh, Victory. Uh, both very important battleships during the Crusade, but now they're focusing more on like uh, the system monitors we talked about a couple times ago, the Gaius Harab and the Brazen Bull. They're not um, incompetent designs, but they're designed to be line ships. They're designed to be used in concert with orbital defenses with other support fleets. Um, they're designed to be much more support intensive. And these are things like the Goliath class and the Legatus class, which uh, we'll get to a little bit later here. Uh, they were described as extremely strong in their own right, but very support intensive. And they've been... Um, They've been replacing these frontline battleships for decades now as it's moving more towards a uh, more of a police force uh, 
of second and first line ships still, but they're almost uh, downsizing in the size of the conflicts they're having to engage in. Because again, it's not this ranging crusade anymore. Uh, it's more concentrated on small wars, is how they describe it. Uh, there are a lot more cruisers and frigates and destroyers. Uh, frigates and destroyers are useful because they're very mobile as escorts. They can uh, chase down Xenos incursions and uh, you know pursue marauders, things like that. Uh, and there are fewer of these huge capital ships by design. Uh, and even though the Goliath and the Legatus class battleships are there, uh, it's much more focused on cruisers, uh, ships of the line, which they're large and they're powerful, but they're not battleships. Uh, they're smaller, they're more mobile, they require less resources to function, which, I mean, if a planet acts up and there's a rebellion happening, you don't need an entire Gloriana battleship to fly out there. That's a huge undertaking just by itself. So as they're downside. These fleets are made much more defensive. Uh, they're described as being piecemeal down into smaller components. And these are entirely uh, commands outside that of the Great Crusade, which is something they touch on is pretty important. Uh, the Grand Admirals of the Navy and the Lord Marshals of the Solar Auxilia are operating on authority pretty much direct from Terra, uh, from Malkador. So they're equal or greater in rank to those Lord Commanders who command the planets that have been conquered by the Great Crusade. Now, under, you know, polite operations, push comes to shove, they're trying not to, you know, influence that authority. But it's still something that they have that's completely different from how the Great Crusade operated. And now, since these fleets are becoming more independent with their own independent authority, it's one thing they touch on that probably saved them quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of issue when everything seems to be going to Horus, like Mars itself, who produces a lot of the battleships and fleet vessels for the Imperium, has thrown in their entire lot with Horus. Since there's this divide between the Crusade fleet, which is very Horus-centric, uh, it feels like pretty much everything to come out of the 63rd Expeditionary Fleet is, um, you know, just another horrible tribulation for anything it inflicts itself on, because, you know... That's Horus's personal fleet. But since these uh, defensive fleets are so much more independent, they, with their uh, authority coming straight from Terra, they're much more in line with uh, that thought of, like during the Legions, uh, are you loyal to your Primarch or are you loyal to the Emperor? That was a common divide between the native Marines and the Terran Astartes. So uh, most of these Port Maw fleet elements are loyal ships and auxiliary regiments uh, that are loyal to the Emperor and that direct Terran authority. And the ones that do turn, not only are they very few in number, but they're much more a cause of from like a corrupt officer cadre or armed mutinies that are like taking over bridges uh, by very well prepared minorities. So, uh, Steve, Austin, that's my breakdown of the Armada fleets. What thoughts do you guys have? So, the one thing that I like most about this, from like a lore perspective, is when they talk about what's happened with uh, the fleet at Fort Maw, this is kind of the nucleus of what'll later become the 40k battle fleets. Right. Like it's a smaller capital or a smaller battleship percentage. Uh, it's a lot of cruisers and they stick in an area and their main job is to make sure nobody gets up. It, right. Like that planet that swore compliance stays compliant. Um, and like you mentioned earlier, they do it for a good reason. 
you have a shit ton of crew because when you have an uprising, you know, if you can ma- maintain three cruisers for the same amount that it takes to maintain a battleship and one of either of those two things will get the job, you know, you can put down three rebellions with three cruisers. If you just have a battleship, then two of those rebellions are swinging in the wind. Um, so it's it's an interesting, like, they have a real world, quote unquote, reason for doing this, uh, which is always fun. Um, let's see. And there was something else that I was thinking of. Totally slipped my mind. I think it's interesting in that when the Death Guard fleet shows up in this region of space, uh, it's almost like, yes, all the fleets are being broken down into smaller fleets, um, which in theory makes them more fluid responding to threats. They're a little more efficient responding to threats. Um, because, you know, three different battle groups are way easier to maneuver and put where you need them than one enormous crusade. Um, but when the Death Guard shows up, they just start smashing aside fleets left and right. And I can't help but wonder if the the breaking down of these Crusade fleets into these compliance fleets had something to do with how easy it was for the 14th Legion to just roll in and start doing what they wanted. That's the other thing I wanted to talk about. Because um, you're absolutely right, right? Like, you can, you can take your 100 ships and go jump on 10 groups of 10 ships. And at the end of the day, you'll probably have close to 100 ships left, and the enemy will have lost, you know, a thousand. Uh, and this is something that even in, like, the age of sail, people knew about, right? Like, you had yeah, fleets... don't put all your eggs in one basket, Spain. <laughs> no, not not put all your eggs in one basket, um, but when you're ready to go beat something to death, like, put all your eggs in one basket. Like, that. Um, that's right, kind of the way of it. Like, hard. when the big battles in World... Uh, for instance, you didn't see three different battles where one carrier fights one carrier. No. Everybody got all their shit together and went and beat somebody to death. Yeah, and if my four or five battleships or carriers or whatever caught your one, you would die. Uh, and that's kind of what happens to the Imperials here. Uh, and that's just based on the type of war they want to fight, right? Like, yeah. you have your battleship and you go to town. Uh, the other interesting thing for me, uh, having gone down a bunch of really weird rabbit lately, uh, is, so we know the Expeditionary and, like, the Crusade fleets had a, had a larger proportion of battleships, right? Like, we know they like And I was wondering why, why that is, because, you know, while, yes, three cruisers can do, do three separate things, and that's great, three cruisers all together is pretty much just as good as having one battleship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was thinking about this, and it's and it finally hit. So what do we know about warp travel? We know that you can sometimes arrive before you start out, mm-hmm. or centuries late, or uh, never. And being like weeks off is kind of the standard, right? Yeah. Uh, this problem is exacerbated if you don't know where you're going. Yeah. Right. Yeah, if you're just plowing through into unknown space. So so this is kind of the same thing I talked about before, but in reverse. So say you have three cruisers, and you you know, you know hear a signal from World B, and you're like, all right, navigators, like we're going to World B. And uh, let's say one arrives on time, and the other two aren't there, and it gets the shit kicked out of it, because it turns out World B doesn't want through. Uh, and then a week, you know, two days later, ship number two shows up, same thing happens, and then three weeks later, ship number three shows up, uh, and it gets the shit kicked out of it too. Meanwhile, then the, then the if you have a battleship and you send it there, all your firepower is getting there at the same time, mm-hmm. right? So if you've mathed out approximately how much force it'll take to turn a planet and just force it to be compliant, it's way easier and safer for you as like an expanding empire 
to send the fewest ships and the biggest ships that you can, uh, just because of the way the warp the warp works, right? Yeah, yeah. Maximize so firepower, minimize losses. Yeah. So I I just thought that was sort of an interesting thought that occurred to me the other day, deep in the bowels of wanting to get out of work. Yeah, man, the things you see going down that. <laughs> right, Papa, is that you? Anyway, um. But, so yeah, it's it's definitely um it, it was to the Death Guard's benefit that the the fleets were not a big unified fleet anymore. Um, yeah, and like we're not we're not saying, dear listener, uh, that the Port Armada fleets were like dumb ideas. It was a good plan. I mean, it's the plan yeah. the Imperium of Mankind uses now, unless they're fighting a crusade. Um, but it's kind of like playing a game of rock paper scissors. And well, at the they same chose time, scissors, and Death Guard had a big old rock. Well, yeah. At the same time, like yes, it's a defensive. It's they're falling back on defensive tactics to, to maintain the the territory that they currently hold. But and it would have worked against like you know Eldar raiders. Um, it works even though to high cost. It works against a space hulk that shows up and has a bunch of gribbly. Mm-hmm. Right, but, but the then one we thing look that at they never expected was for a legion fleet. To show up in almost its entirety and just plant the flag and like this is ours now. Well, I think what both of you guys are getting is that a legion fleet. Um, yeah, it is. It's it's absolutely scary. Um, but as scary as a legion fleet is, the combined firepower of the Port Ma Armada fleet could have easily, if not taken out the Death Guard fleet that showed up, um, could have. Si- it, you know, inflicted significant injury on it. Which oh, is yeah. Wh- well, part of that is the fact that they yeah. Port Maul fleet contains Port Maul. Uh, not, not, not as much as you think, actually, Stephen. Port Maul is not an orbital defense platform. Port Maul is, is literally a, a a stationing base. It's got some orbital satellites. It you know that it can do stuff with, but. I think what you may be getting at is is sort of the command and control. Yeah, and it's, as we Port Mall, yeah. its own firepower may not be significant. Right, relatively speaking, it can't be discounted as a reason. Right. So I think when we go through this uh, this arc, this story arc that we've been going on, um, the way that Horus and Mortarion are looking at Port Mall it's an obstacle to be gotten through, and so to get through it with the least amount of time and, and, and casualties, you know, and basically get to the final objective, which is obviously the, you know, the throne world and segmentum solar is they've got to, they've got to dismantle. How do you dismantle any right? Is, is you take out command and control. And so there is this massive command and control ship that the Port Ma Armada has. It's called the Triumph of Reason. And it is described as being not one, but two Legatus-class macro battleships basically fused together. And and this is what, you know, this is the biggest threat to um, the Death Guard fleet, Stephen, is, is if, if this guy, right, Grand Admiral, Admiral Osphius Labray, like if he can muster the combined firepower of the Port Maw fleet, which remains largely loyal despite their best efforts, right? Which, which I think sends, it speaks to the discipline and sort of the overall military bearing of the, uh, you know, the, the solar auxilia, right. As well as the, the Imperial, uh, exertus. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I think if I may, may yeah. make a note on that, um, it's kind of like what Jason said. Jin's forces, regiments of the Solar regiments of the um, it was a very are you loyal to the loyal to your primarch does being loyal to your primarch constitute as loyalty to the emperor there's that whole thing the the navy even though it's not the navy yet but you know the the naval elements of the imperial are very much a order unto themselves yes they take orders from the primarch yes they spend a lot of time operating closely with the legion but there's still a very there's still a degree of separation you know, in the same way that um, you ride around in, in your Uber driver's car, but that doesn't make you friends with your, you know? Um, no, no, you're absolutely right. I think it was much harder for um, Horus and the Warrior Lodges and their, their sort of known tactics for subversion to yeah. take hold in um, what essentially was, you know, the creme de la creme of the human um, military discipline, right? It's, it's the solar auxilia. I mean, these were people that were the, they were, we talked about this last episode, but they were the special forces of the special forces and they were assigned to positions that, uh, you know, a, a Lord Marshal um, in the Solar Auxilia or the Imperialis Exertus overran or, you know, in some, in some instances, uh, overruled and over could override a planetary lord governor. So, I mean, you know, these these people have tremendous power and uh, military heritage and bearing. And so I, I think it, it is important for Horus and Mortarian coming into Port Ma, facing the numbers that they face, even though they're not quite the same makeup, right? They, they, like less first line capital ships, more second line. But if they could muster that firepower, man, they could take it apart. So um, I don't know. I, I just it's 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 an interesting problem because if you're Horus and you're sending the Death Guard fleet into Port Ma, what's the first thing you know you think you might need to do to take it apart? Well, obviously, like you said earlier, that command structure eliminated. Um, it's always been a proven thing it's, uh, among the more there. While yes, the individual man is indeed a human, as Austin will say many times, um, it's their commanders and their officers that that are the, the backbone of it. Stephen, I think what I said is every man is a goddamn hero. Right? Perhaps put your pants on one leg at a time. At the end of the day, you're taking your flashlight with delusions of grandeur and running in a twelve foot tall super soldier wearing a tank. <laughs> I, I may have paraphrased slightly um but it's it's definitely all about that they gotta they they gotta cut off the head of the serpent so to speak which is a favorite tactic of horus from the beginning go for, right from the beginning kind of guy and then he'll pick you apart once your head is gone and i think that being said the death guard was the perfect legion to send against uh against port Maul because and we'll get into this a little bit later with uh, with death guard fleet dispositions but they're they're very much a keep going until either we're dead or they're dead, and we're a lot tougher. Um, so he knew the head was heavily. He was going to need somebody with a lot of durability to be able to get to it and actually take it off. I mean, hell, Death Guard, you know, drink poison at the end of every battle. Just think what they do with their ships. I mean, British sailors used to drink uh, distilled. They would mix oil, engine oil, in with their tea or their brandy. You know what? Can so, you stop yeah. making the Death Guard not cool? Like, like that'd be great. I mean, the Royal Navy's pretty baller. I'm just gonna... Yeah, the Death Guard are cool. What do you want? <laughs> they have the best ship names. We'll get into that later. Well, uh, yeah, and absolutely we'll get into it. I, there's so many cool ships we 
go. Um, and I know Stephen, you've got a great a great laydown of the uh, Death Guard's fleet. Um, but uh, just so our, our listeners don't hang out there and and uh, wonder too much, the 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 way they do this is clever, right? Um, and and Jason may want to get into this a bit because there's a uh, there's a very singular war arc which I've never heard described before. Um, it's it's designated as the arithmetic of violence, um, which has got to be the coolest fucking name if you've got a mechanical war arc. Um, I would have done better in math if that had been a. <laughs> that yeah. was it. Yeah. Yeah, that'd but be the, pretty fantastic. So, so the arithmetic of violence as a war art. Um, does anyone want to talk on on that? Um, like a lot of ships in the Mechanicum, uh, and you know, it actually might be a little bit intentional in games where part what with the whole secrecy and the mysteries of the machine cult there's just not a lot of information on what mechanicum ships are war arcs battle spheres uh galleuses so on and so forth they use a lot of terminology in with standard imperial classifications yeah no absolutely steve and, and we were having this conversation before we started recording um you know other than what we know from battlefleet goth uh you know the, their their published game specialist games uh, back in the day, the only thing we have to go on in terms of lore for the heresy is um, page 15 in book three, which is Warships of the Great Crusade. And some of the, the classes of ships we've been talking about today, right, like the Legatus class, um, war arcs, don't, they don't show up there. So... Uh, I mean, Stephen, you've done a tremendous amount of work trying to port over rules from Battlefleet Gothic into Battlefleet Heresy so we can have a game uh, that's playable but also follows the lore. And so, I mean, that's I mean, that's part of why you're on today, man, is if, if you had to, you know, look at a, a war arc and from the, the description that, that, you know, I'll lay out here, right? You know, how would you design it? And this is, so this is it. So the Cyclothraithine war arc designated arithmetic of violence silently broke apart. It's 10 kilometer hull, it's 10 kilometer long hull plates separating like petals of a colossal flower in a storm. Revealed within place of internal decks were row upon serried row of inert void torpedoes, which, as if lit by a single torch, ignited their plasma drives with a golden blaze of fire. They burned across the void to the Agathean, smaller ships caught in their path obliterated instantly and struck home like the obliterating fist of a god the sudden searing flash of a score of mighty warships dying at once in fire was so bright that in that instant it burned visible to the naked eye even to the dark edges of the system's orc cloud. And there in answer, a gigantic black warship came to life. So that's just a little teaser for our listeners, but I mean, that is, that's essentially how the traitors uh, attempted to take out the command and control of Port Ma. Um, but yeah, Stephen, man, is that just not the fucking most badass description you can imagine? It's pretty cool. Um, it's, I mean, to, to my mind, the opening of it, and you know, I can I can picture enemy command fighter craft. Oh shit, those are rockets! Oh no. Um, I think war art is probably comparable to a battle barge 
in terms of purpose and in terms of function. Uh, and I say that because in the information that I've generally gathered about how the Basilicon Astra, the, uh, the space-borne arm of the Mechanicum, works, um, is that we, we know that Magi are generally and individually pretty eccentric. They all, even though they all owe their allegiance to their forge of choice, a lot of times they pursue their own agenda. They have their own little pet projects. And to my mind, a war orc is a Magos or a, a Magos home away from home. It's his little spaceborne laboratory. He tricked it out however he wanted. No two war arcs are are likely the same. Um, and where they do not contain crazy planet-killing weapon uh, like the arithmetic of violence, they might contain uh, just tons of relics and little projects and other things that. Um, but speaking to the arithmetic in particular, it is obviously a, a weapon carrier, possibly one that is suited towards planetary, as we'll see when they actually get around to, the, uh, to fighting the war in the cluster. Um, we know that battle barges in general are are highly suited to planetary assault. They have they carry exterminatus grade weaponry, they carry bombardment cannons, magma bombs, all that craziness. So if I was to design something, I would I would heavily say that it is a Basilican Astra equivalent to a battle barge, and just like a battle barge, no, no two of them are exact. Yeah, which obviously makes it like super. Right, I'm sure Austin would agree. End play and yeah, but it is fucking awesome in the in the lore. Yeah, it's it's. It's cool every time they mention a Mechanicum ship, um, because even though within the context of Mechanicum Astra, the Black Books generally use a lot of the same words. Like I said, War Arcs, Gallius, uh, Barks, stuff like that. But then each time they use it, they're describing a different ship. Yeah, yeah, and so we don't get the consistency from the lore that we need in order to form yeah, like every time, a whole picture of, yeah. Every time someone mentions a battle cruiser, you know, you generally have a good idea of what it's going to be, especially if they give a class to Every time they say uh, Lunar Class Cruiser, you know exactly what it is. But even these these Mechanicum ships is just like, well, what the hell is that? Well, that's part of the reason why we wanted to have you guys on today. So please, without further ado, I'm sorry for interrupting. Um, give us your thoughts on the many and varying forms of 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 ships that we may encounter in this section that we just have no idea on. And Stephen, you've got a great laydown of the. Of um, the Death Guard fleet. So let, let's start with that, man. Let's just go down the list. Sure. Um, you mean uh, actual uh, classes of vessels that we know that are in the fleet here? What are you, what are you referring to? Yeah, like the whole fleet composition and like the classes of vessels and maybe even like some of them that we don't necessarily, we've never really heard of, you know? So, um, and Austin, feel free to jump in anytime, whatever I say, yes, as I'm sure you will, as I'm sure I will. Uh, the... The Death Guard fleet, first, the first thing we know about is that it is enormous. The Death Guard have committed probably about three quarters uh, or more of their fleet to this campaign. Uh, if we go back to the, the battle at Dominica Minor, we know that there are roughly 40 enemy wrecks uh, that the, the Sun Dragons find when they come back into system. Now, in terms of Void Warfare, you generally want a firepower ratio of three to one when it comes to killing ships. Uh, which is to say that, generally speaking, it's going to take the firepower of three ships to kill one ship of equivalent displacement. Three battleships to kill one battleship, three cruisers to kill cruiser, so on and so forth. So if we do, if we extrapolate from that, we know that the Death Guard fleet at Dominica Minor probably consisted of somewhere 120 uh, to 100 ships. 
that just showed up. And like I said earlier, every time the Death Guard bring another fleet to battle in this campaign, they just sweep it aside. They suffer almost no casualties, and the Imperial fleet is just as scrap spinning in the void. We know from the uh, honor roll of the Death Guard fleet at the time that they have brought every battleship that the fleet has to this campaign, with the exception of the Endurance, which is off doing more Tyrion things, and the Terminus Est is captained by Typhon. He's probably out, I don't know, playing with Nerglings. I mean, that's still important to know, though, because, I mean, some people may not realize that Mortarion wasn't there. No? Mm-hmm. So who was leading, then, the Death Guard fleet, or d- does it even go into that detail? Oh, no, Mortarion is there. He's just not captaining the Endurance. Oh, okay. So what, yeah, is, what he, is he on, then? He is on, I believe, uh, the Fourth Horseman is his is his ship of choice for this one. Um, and I'm extrapolating that from the fact they refer to the Fourth Horseman by name as his personal cruiser. Uh, and in the Death Guard's exemplary battles, the Fourth Horseman is one that he frequently embarks on when he's going to go kick ass. So when he's not on the Endurance, I think he's riding around. Um, but like Austin said earlier, when you want to go and you want to go conquer a, a system or another planet, what have you. Sending the battleships is a good idea uh, because you have all of your firepower. Race. And the Death Guard, at this point, like I said, they've brought every battleship except two. And really, I'm not even sure about the Endurance in there. It might be hanging on somewhere. It's just listed as the only ship missing from the Death Guard's uh, role of the heaviest vessels is the Terminus Est. So the Endurance might be there. They might be... They might also be classifying the Gloriana as something more than just simply heavy vessel. Anyway. Um, so all these battleships are here, and they're just they they're forming a wedge. They are using a a pretty typical uh, naval tactic of the wedge, which is made to just smash battle lines, which for the most part, given their defensive nature, is what these compliance fleets are forming up in. Uh, ships of a line forming the line of battle. And the Death Guard for their part, just don't give a fuck. And first they smash through, and then they fan out and englobe their target, and then they fire. And the effect is pretty instant, and it's pretty devastating. There's not much evidence that the Death Guard suffered anything more uh, superficial damage when running these gauntlets, because again, they put their heaviest ships at the front. And and battleships, as you're probably aware, are not easy to kill. Uh, Austin and I spoke a little bit last time we were on, about how amazing it is that at Dominica Minor, um, or not Dominica Minor, the first, uh, the first battle of the, the campaign, which is escaping me at the moment. Um, but there are three retribution battleships that are amongst the dead, and we were losing our minds a little bit over that, because to kill a battle is hard stuff. To kill three battleships in one battle is even harder. So imagine the desperation, Will, of these Imperial defenders just throwing everything they have at 10, 20, 30 battleships that just keep coming. Yeah, it's 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 a grim, grim, I think. It's described really, really well, sort of get to that. But, um, yeah, I just, these these unknown battleship types, right? And I think they might leave our, our, our listeners wanting for more. But uh, there's just not a lot to work with, right? You know, we're not yeah, there the, yet. The sad fact yeah. is, is that there, there is no more to go yeah, by. There's no more. I mean, <laughs> we, we have put, uh, yeah. we've put the Battlefleet Gothic rulebook through the cogitator. We put Armada 
through the cogitator. We put every single black book through the cogitator. Um, I was at one point looking through digital copies of the Battlefleet Gothic magazine, trying to maybe find some strands of information. And I just, there's just not a lot of it. And that's what happens when you make vague, oblique references to a game that you stopped supporting eight years ago. Yeah, uh, it's actually been kind of throwbacky for me because digging through random stuff about 30k battle fleets and like weird ships and all that reminds me of what used to happen uh, before the Horus Heresy Black Books and the Black Library series came out when people were trying to figure out what the hell actually happened. To- Right, it's it's sort of the same thing. You're digging through all these really really obscure like publications and boxes for other stuff, uh, desperate for like that one half sentence that like will yeah. give you illumination. Yeah, it's like it's like uh, it's a little bit of deja vu, right? So we used to talk about the heresy in uh, you know um, back rooms and opium dens, and you had to have a secret handshake to get in. Um, but, uh, it's true. It's true. It's, it's true. Um, yep, it's a true thing I just made up. But you know, I feel like yeah, you know, we're we're kind of we're kind of going back to that uh, here. And um, man, I just hope uh, Andy Hoare, as a former black librarian and uh, author of many many Battlefleet Gothic novels, um, you say many many like there's two, more than all two of them. <laughs> yeah. It's a compilation, and there may have been some short stories along the way. <laughs> Indeed, there were not. <laughs> yeah, there's there's two they, Battlefleet Gothic-themed books. Um, I mean, there's what? Rogue Trader, not Battlefleet Gothic. Gothic. It's he's got a Execution Hour, and Shadow Point, and that yeah. is it. Well, yeah. I mean, some of us think Rogue Trader should be part of that. And some of us are wrong. <laughs> but, hey, you're but, just an adjunct. Don't Don't get me started. Guest lecturer, you know, <laughs> I have a PhD. You know how I feel about this, so uh, I'm I'm really hoping that this is the these are the opening. Um, you know, they're the opening salvos of, of something that's going to be coming down the pipelines. And um, yeah, I but think actually, can we can we backtrack yeah. just a little bit? Uh, yeah, did absolutely. we talk about the Kurga? Did that happen? No, we did oh, not. No, no we, we did okay, not. Okay, so I'm yeah. I'm going to talk about this. Speaking of obscure ship designs and all this other nonsense. Here's one that really should be an orc ship, all right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is a ship a, after my own heart, so it must be an orc ship. It's called a Dictatus-class ram battleship, uh, called the Kurga. And it, it has servo claws six kilometers long. And it literally just, like, attaches to a tower. Oh, just sort of like crack. This is not something, obviously, uh, that any any Imperial Navy or Chaos or Crusade human ship. We've just never seen this before. In fact, and we don't I were, see anything like it for another ten thousand years when the Tyranids show up. Yeah, like even even the orcs, like well, they have no, some no, no, ships no, no, no. with grabby claws, but they tend to grab you, pull you close to make it easier to board, rather than grab and snap and shenaniganize. Um, and this got Stephen and I thinking, actually right before we started recording, and the best we can figure is, we know Port Maw is sort of fleet reserve, right? Uh, that's what it started out as, and it's transitioning to, you know, sort of the sector fleets that we know and love from 40k. But as a reserve, one of the things that, you know, Russia has reserved of T-34s, you know, out in the middle of Siberia or wherever the hell they, you know, the U.S. and any any country has reserves of things that are obsolete and weird just kind of sitting in depots just on the off chance. Uh, so the best we can think is that 
the Kurga isn't is it's almost certainly human because the Imperium doesn't fuck around with Xeno stuff. Not uh, where the, not where anyone can see anyway. But equally certain, it's not actually Imperial. Um, this is probably a ship that was part of a non-Imperial human Empire's fleet, uh, which either through peaceful compliance or otherwise came under the Imperial navy's control at which point they probably said what the fuck do we do with this uh uh, well just put it in the depot if the mechanicum wants to like fiddle with it to look at you know tech that's fine and we're just going to keep it in the depot and i scrap it for parts in a couple millennia and then of course the heresy blows up and suddenly anything with a warp drive is getting you know a hundred thousand serfs thrown on it and the second lieutenant promoted to captain last week uh and told to go fight somebody well, Austin, you just I, I sound a really interesting. Habit. I think it might be one. Uh, you're you're breaking up, old Dave. Uh, okay, am I still breaking up? No, you're good. You're good. Yep. Okay. Uh, you, you took us down a really interesting rabbit hole, and uh, I think it might be one worth exploring with our listeners. Because you know, I'm not sure how many folks know this, but uh, I mean the the Imperium as an you know functioning entity is at this point only. 200 years old, right? And so you don't build a galaxy-conquering fleet of spaceships in 200s. Uh, Not with that attitude. (laughs) (laughs) And not with the resources of even Jupiter and Mars and Saturn combined. Um, So, And we know this from from a lot of the description of of early rogue trader vessels, right? Uh, The early rogue traders were basically um, held at gunpoint and the emperor gave them a choice, right? Go out or die. Go out and serve or, yeah, die. Um, And it was the same choice that a lot of human, um, you know, the human empires that had survived Mm -hmm. Old Night and, um, you know, they, they were still out there in the segmentum solar, but weren't tied to Terra in any way. Uh, so a lot of these ships, uh, Austin, waydate the Imperium, man. And so, you know, they may never be rep. They may never, we may never know. Yeah. Well, we um, absolutely definitely have ships like that. Um, the Mirabilis, the Nikor, and the Terminus Est are three vessels that are, that were gift, that were basically either found or given to the Imperium upon compliance. And the Mechanicum just has absolutely no idea where it came from or how to replicate it. Yeah, um, and like we see this all the time with the army, right? The Imperial army is a great example where they're like, well, you boys just surrendered to us, so you're going off and we're going to use you as cannon fodder on the next world over. Uh, that is, though, a lot harder to do with ships. Um, you know, if somebody's got a really weird type of rifle, it, like, at the end of the day, it's not that hard to make a bullet that gets shot out by that rifle. Uh, or just to take all their rifles and give them Lasgo. It's like real use. Uh, but for Navy ships, like, that's a much tougher call, right? Like, if your reactor is something that the Mechanicum doesn't know how to make work, uh, or even if they do and it's just the only one in a thousand light years, eh, your yeah. ship's not going to be any good. Like, it doesn't matter how good your ship is. If you don't get repairs, you're going to break down. And having breakdowns in space is super bad. Uh, yeah, there's no, there's no I, AAA. I point your attention to Apollo 13, right? Like, yeah. like so there's no AAA a little in tiny space. thing going wrong can be terrible. So even these big Imperial ships, you know, that are meant and designed for 10, 20 years, uh, being able to operate without ever su- touching a base again, 
yeah, but at the end of that 10 or 20 years, you know, if that stretches to 30 years, suddenly your ship doesn't work, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's an interesting concept. Because a lot of these ships, like you said, uh, they're gifted, right? I don't think, especially the older patterns of ships that predate the Imperium, they might be just, like, from that mythical pre-Old Knight human empire. So there's probably a lot of them floating around, you know? Yeah. Well, they, uh, they the, say in, in Book 3... Um, and this is another reason why a lot of these ships around and after 10,000 years of the heresy, um, they basically just grab every single ship that they have access to at any given time and hurl it into the Great Crusade. They're like, eh, war will figure out if it's good or not. And spoiler alert, a lot of them aren't. They, they either just break down after a few months and they're like, never using those again. Yeah. Or they 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 end up being really good, but you know, two hundred years of warfare is two hundred years of warfare, and when you don't know how to fix your tool, you're going to well, lose examples of it pretty quick. That's that's exactly where I'm going, Stephen. Is that you know, as if you look at the Great Crusade as our offspring of unification, right? So it's the emperor operating under a mandate to expand, you know, um, humanity's grasp all of the galaxy. So, so his logical, his logical um, first places to get resources are in the solar system, right? So mm-hmm. we know that he conquers the moons, and there are there are very significant um, cults on the moon. We won't get into, but then we he goes out and and he conquers um, the solar system, right? So he conquers Saturn and Jupiter, which both have very advanced ship making um, facilities, and they're operating on those moons, right? Saturn's moons and Jupiter's. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we know that, and so he takes control of those ship facilities and he's pumping out ships and then he expands from there and you're right you just you you take everything you can and you use it for for your crusade because however know, long it lasts however long it lasts but we know that the emperor has um you know foresight and he's got he's got reason to believe that you know, humanity, if it doesn't conquer the galaxy in a very finite amount of time, um, will be facing species extinction. So, um, so yeah, he's just grabbing everything that floats, right? That's a that's including a battleships. <laughs> bad bad analogies because <laughs> everything yeah. floats in space. But, but I mean, yeah, d- Dave, if you think about it, like his grand plan, yes, he's 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 essentially collecting all of humanity and bringing it back to Terra. You know, I don't know. I mean, Austin, I mean, did, did, does Terra produce um fucking battleships? Terra does not. Very specifically, no. Terra, Terra does not. Only produces propaganda. Terra, <laughs> Terra corpses. produces space marines. By the time of the by the time of the heresy, Terra produces space marines for about three legions and um, like some custodes and I don't know. Theoretically, they might be reinforcing some of the old hundred. Well, That's yeah, they it. reinforce like the Geno. And um, a couple others, but yeah, all, but like all, it's all the spaceships, right? All the all the battleships and battle barges and every other class that you can think of are being produced either on Mars, on Saturn, or most likely uh, on Jupiter, right? In the Jovian shipyards, which I think are the biggest shipyards that we know about. <laughs> yeah, it's all getting made there. Um, yeah, at, and at there's least just, initially, there's just no reason not to, right? Like all the infrastructure is already there. Uh, the emperor is obviously putting all like any resource that can be used to make a ship is going to one of those three spots, and it's obviously enough to work. So why waste 
Like instead of making another battleship and Sol and uh, Mars, Jupiter, you're not going to take those resources to go build a space dock in orbit above Terra, right? It just doesn't make any economic sense. I think there are um, ship. I think there are shipyards. There are shipyards. What? I, I want to say there's uh, lesser shipyards on on the moon. Yeah, I mean every planet that's part of an interstellar empire and is like at that level of technology is going to have something but you know a shipyard that can make a tug or like a system ship is not the same at all as can make a battleship or a cruiser like look at modern day like we got a sub we we got a bunch of ports we build a bunch of ships uh but submarines are only coming out of north right aircraft carriers are only coming out of norfolk because that's where the expertise and all the infrastructure is. And until there comes a day where we need to build way more than we do, there's no point turning, you know, San Diego to have that I mean, capability. It's like Space that. Force is coming. Gotta have sh- gotta have spaceships for the space force. <laughs> yeah, join the space force today. Higher adventure, like higher pay. Ooh, there it is. But we're going way off course now. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, Terra might be able to make some piddly little ships on their own, uh, but it. When it comes to ship the line, that's happening uh, in the big or the big three orbital dot. Right on. Well, I, I think we've we have certainly tried to answer all the questions that might come up as we explore the coordinate deeps, and um, yeah, we've got very few references, guys. So um, page fifteen in book three, and then you know what you find throughout the the, the heresy um, black books. Uh, those are what we have to go by. And please, if you guys think you might know the answer to any of these questions, um, we'll throw it out there. Uh, if you want to write us uh, an email or message us, whatever, you know, find us on social media. Um, if you think you might know the answer to some of these things. Um, but yeah, I think that's as far as we can go, really, uh, with an exploration of the the types of spacecraft that, you know, we encounter during the Coronet Deeps and then on into um, on the Harris, unless anybody else has any parting comments. I, the, the, the problem is that you could just keep going down the rabbit hole forever. Yeah. The deeps right. And the, the naval stuff with it. So for the sake of time, we'll just we'll call that one, put a lid on that one. Yeah. I mean, you could spend hours trying to figure out if, if this thing, if something was like a precursor to a battle barge or something like that. But, you know. Well, well Stephen, Stephen and Austin have spent hours probably. This is true. <laughs> days, maybe nigh on months. But um, their research is available, guys. Um, Stephen Austin, tell our listeners where they can find the most current Battlefleet Heresy rules. Uh, oh, geez. Um, I there's a there's Reddit posts on both uh, Horus Heresy subreddit, Battlefleet subreddits. Just type in Horus Heresy, and uh, it should be one of the first results you get. Another um, place you guys can go is uh, Battlefleet colon Heresy on uh, Facebook. As well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if, you know, you really want to be a, a pain in the ass, you can just message me directly and I will shoot you. What have I done? Yeah, you done fucked up. Yep. <laughs> you just opened up the uh, floodgates there, Steve. Well, joke's on them. I'm in West Virginia. There's no internet. Ha! Get your yeah, speaking no to us somehow. Uh, yeah, that's because this West Virginia on the <laughs> well. Let's just say I learned I learned a little more than just naval stuff by digging deep into these rabbit holes. Oh, hear the voices too. Oh, oh God, uh, he's become tainted. <laughs> become? 
well, more tainted, I guess. So until Games Workshop and Forge World <clears throat> and Dehor, uh, until you give us rules for playing spaceships in the Heresy, we've got the best thing you can go by, which is uh, a very, very comprehensive uh, deep dive and look at the rules. And on these specific types of ships, uh, we've got it for you guys. So if you have questions, what it's worth, yeah. Uh, for what it's worth, I refuse to write rules battleship. I refuse to stoop to that level of silliness. Yeah, no, please don't. No, please don't. Yeah, don't do that. Um, you want to guys, battleship? Play the Conqueror. <laughs> play the Conqueror. Play best ship in the Heresy, commanded by the best captain. I may... May she live forever in our hearts and minds. Indeed. Or may not be in love with Latara Saren. So, okay. Um, <laughs> it's alright, yes. folks. His wife does not listen. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. She finds it as silly as the rest of our wives. So thank, uh, thank God, right? Our hobby is our hobby is safe. This one, I'm... Yeah, man. Good luck, Stephen. Good luck, man. Yeah. May the odds right. forever be in your favor. So, guys, I think we're gonna and we're gonna leave it there. Um, this has been an awesome. Before we go, before yep. we go, uh, yep. I would like to make a shout out because I'm pretty sure Patrick, you're gonna have this up couple of days right yeah uh, uh yeah it'll be up uh, next monday this coming so monday so that'll be a day after november 11th uh and i would be remiss as a history major to not point out that that is the 100th anniversary of the the end of world war one uh, which is awesome and where gw gets a lot of its ideas from yeah, especially um, battlefleet gothic ideas yeah especially battlefleet gothic imperial guard and militia uh, so new invincible class battleship <laughs> Right. Uh, so if you're interested in 30k stuff, uh, I would say go read the Wikipedia on the battle jump, right? Go look up Admiral Graf von Spee and his crazy German shenanigans. Or uh, maybe, you know, if you'd like a little infantry shenanigan, read A Storm of Steel by Ernst Younger. It's awesome. Oh, it's grimdark. Yeah, uh, talk about a and the man is insane. Uh, so yeah, I know that's a little off topic for what we normally do, but... You know, the hundredth anniversary of a war only happened twice a century. So what the hell? <laughs> we hope. Yeah. Inshallah. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean World War One, guys, Austin's absolutely right. Uh it's where we get our collective gestalt, uh, unconscious, you know, love for, for human suffering on a scale that we really can't comprehend in today's uh, society. So Take that for what it is, and uh, yeah, see you next time. Thank you guys for being on. It was fun. Yeah. All right, let's say goodbye. Commit your souls for the void knows no mercy. <laughs> Bye. Now go away, Craig. We don't like you anymore. Fuck off, Craig. Yeah. Fuck off.